Our sermon text today comes from Psalm 49. Uh, we're going to be considering the Psalm of Wisdom. It's found on page 472 in the Pew Bibles if you want to look. But before we do, let's run through these uh, worldview questions that we've been using lately. Who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice. What does He do? He blesses and protects those who embrace His covenant from the heart while demonstrating His justice against those who rebel against Him. When does He do these things? Often in the here and now and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Embrace His covenant from the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for His justice. Uh, these questions developed by Jay Sklarb from Covenant Seminary have been helping us grasp the worldview forming the foundation of the Psalms, uh, really all of the Old Testament literature, as God's people knew Him through His Word and through His works in the Old Testament, their understanding of who the Lord is and what He does became the glasses through which they looked at the world. To see that, that true reality, reality that was even more real than what their own eyes could see, uh, reality that rested on the unchanging character of the Lord, they, they began to express that understanding through what we call wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature, it really appears throughout the Bible, most famously, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and there are psalms of wisdom too. They're songs that are meant to help God's people, to help you approach life's problems from God's perspective and with God in view. And so today I want you to consider the wisdom of Psalm 49. It speaks to the rich and poor so that you and I both might live and die wisely. But let's pray first as we come to God's Word. Father, You have given this Word to Your people to train us, to, to help us think rightly and feel rightly and act rightly in light of You and Your grace and Your goodness. And so, Father, uh, we pray that Your Spirit today would fulfill that purpose of this word in our lives, that we would be those who live today with a true understanding of you and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, as you have made yourself known to us in him. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Psalm 49. Hear this. All peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. 
For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Every culture of every age of the earth, there have been the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And so, in every culture and in every age, people have lived with the tensions and the temptations that accompany either having wealth or lacking it. And knowing this, the psalmist speaks to every culture in every age. Whereas so many of the Psalms are written by and for people who know and love Yahweh, Israel's covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, this Psalm has a much wider audience in mind. Verses 1 and 2 open with an invitation to all peoples, all inhabitants of the world, people of low and high stations, humanly speaking, are invited to listen. The haves and the have-nots both are called to pay attention because in verse 3, they're about to hear wisdom expressed. They're about to hear understanding, a riddle that often confuses the human heart is going to be solved in this song. Can you see in that already a glimmer of God's grace? Because although this song is a somber one, it's dealing with death and eternal destinies, at the same time, this psalm is as evangelistic as it is sober. To all people, everywhere, God speaks good news, His wisdom pointing to a live hope that exists even beyond the grave. A hope that you cannot buy, but God freely gives to any rich or poor who trust in Him. And so are you listening? 
Because you and I need this wisdom that speaks to life and death and what lay beyond both. We need this wisdom to answer the same question that pricks the psalmist's heart and ours. Look at that question that rises in verses 4 and 5. Look with me. This is actually the riddle of verse 4 that needs solving. This is the life situation that needs a proverb to guide us how to feel and to think and to live. Because the psalmist looks around him and what he sees is deeply troubling. Instead of people who trust the Lord and live accordingly as gracious and generous neighbors, he sees people who trust in their wealth and take advantage of Him. They flaunt their lavish lifestyle, which they actually acquired by stealing from Him. Now, imagine how you would feel if today somebody drained your bank account. Now imagine how you somehow see pictures of this person on Instagram enjoying a drink on the beach and they just happen to be wearing a rather flashy watch on their arm, and you know that it was all bought with your money. How would you feel? I would say you would feel like the psalmist, only his situation is actually worse than that. Because the psalmist is most likely looking at his fellow Israelites. He's looking at his fellow members of the people of God, the very people who are supposed to love him are cheating him. The very people who are supposed to be walking humbly with God, loving mercy, doing justice to each other, instead of being surrounded by them, he's surrounded by their iniquity. He sees the wrongness of it all everywhere he looks. But listen to him. Listen to how he invites us to, into his inner monologue. Consider how he talks to himself, surrounded by people who trust in wealth and seem to be enjoying themselves thoroughly. He asks himself, why should I fear? He names what he feels, fear. Even if he's challenging himself as to why he should feel that way. And so you and I should ask this question. This is our connection with this text. What is he afraid of? Well, we aren't exactly told. It seems to stem from this deep injustice that he has suffered at the hands of his fellow countrymen. But maybe you can identify with what he's feeling. Maybe you have felt similarly when you've seen the difference between the faithful poor and the arrogant rich. Maybe you've been afraid of someone taking advantage of you. Maybe you have been taken advantage of, and the idea of it happening again just creates this anxiety in your heart that could really only be summarized by fear. Or... Or maybe you're afraid that you just won't have enough. But whenever those who trust in their wealth have an easy life, and those who trust in the Lord are struggling, 
Fear is a natural response. Because we expect God to make sure that His people are comfortable. Especially me. And we expect Him to make the lives of those who reject Him hard. And without wisdom, without wisdom, the upending of our expectations forms fear in us. Fear that maybe God isn't who He says He is. Fear that maybe the schemes of the rich will somehow diminish me. Fear that maybe, just maybe, we are actually missing out on the good life. Because making wealth a focus seems to be working really well for those folks. If you can identify with that feeling of fear, then you must also listen to how the psalmist begins to challenge his own feeling. Why should I fear? He asks. And as soon as the question comes out of his mouth, his song begins to supply the answer. And it takes verses 7 to 20 to fully answer why fear is unfounded for God's people. But look at verses 12 and 20. These two verses summarize the two main parts of the answer. Verse 12 says, man in his pomp, that is, man in his arrogance, his confidence in wealth, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. But compare that to verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Did you hear how similar those two verses are to each other? But yet there's also an important difference between them. That's actually how Hebrew poetry works. It highlights how it highlights things. It's a literary version of like those two pictures that are side by side and you're supposed to spot the difference between the two. The difference that you see is actually connected to the main idea that you're supposed to get from this. And so verse 12 essentially says this, all human beings die like beasts. In death, all people return to the dust from which we were made. But verse 20 says that there is a need for understanding, suggesting that Not everyone embraces the wisdom that the psalmist offers in verse 3. To to say it plainly, if we ask the question, why should I fear, the answer is summed up in this. All human beings die, but not all human beings die with understanding. And that difference of understanding means everything. And so that's our main question for today. What do we need to understand? 
What does it mean to die with understanding? More importantly, what does it mean to live today with understanding? What is the wisdom that is being offered to us in this song? This is where we're going to consider the two main halves of this psalm. From verses 7 to 12, we understand this. Wealth means nothing in death. Wealth means nothing in death. And from verses 13 to 20, we must understand that after death comes a divergence. After death comes a divergence. And if we truly understand these two things, we can live and we can die without fear, like the psalmist. So first, look with me at verses 7 to 12. Here, we must understand that wealth means nothing in death. In several ways, the psalmist drives home the point of how empty it is to trust in wealth or to boast in what you have. In verses 7 to 9, he says, no matter how much you have, you don't have enough to live forever. The ransom that is mentioned here is making the point that not a single person in human history has ever, been to, has ever been able to buy their way out of death. They couldn't do it for themselves. They couldn't do it for anyone else that they cared about. In the civil law of Israel, you can read about this in Exodus 21.30. In the civil law of Israel, there were actually situations where a payment of money could be made to even commute a death sentence. But here the point is simple. Death can't be paid off. Uh, It's like Inigo Montoya from that classic movie, The Princess Bride. Uh, The six-fingered count who killed Inigo's father offers Inigo everything he has to spare his life. But everything he has is not enough. Everything he has cannot stop death from taking him. And the psalmist sings here that the grave is as unyielding as Inigo. But in verse 7, he presses the point further. He calls God to mind. Remembering that as the originator of life, there will come a day when you, who has been in, you who have been entrusted with your life for a time, you must give it back to its owner, to God. And what good will wealth do you on that day? The toys that give us pleasure today, will God accept them in exchange for a few more years, for a few more days, for a few more minutes? Verses 10 to 11 press deeper still. Look at the history of the world, he suggests. And remember that you will soon go the way of all men. And what man, wise or foolish, believing or unbelieving, rich or poor, what person remains forever? Not a single one. Even the great ones whose names became the names of the land that they conquered, could even the great ones maintain their legacy after they went to the grave? Indeed, no matter what you can boast about in life. In the end, as one writer puts it, earthly wealth achieves no more than a lasting tomb. Verses 11 to 
in the end, the only thing you will possess is, a few, is the few feet of space that your body occupies in the grave. That's why the psalmist sums it up like this in verse 12. Man in his pomp, in all of his glory, will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. Wisdom, then, cries out for us to understand that wealth means nothing in death. But if we can say that about death, there are many other things we could trust about which we could say the same thing. For some people, it's their health. They take care of their bodies rigorously, vigorously in this life, hoping that it will make their life the way that it's supposed to be, and yet it doesn't. One of my favorite bits from the old David Letterman show was when he gave his stage crew chief, Biff, when he gave Biff a bullhorn and sent him out into the city, Biff was harassing all sorts of people with that bullhorn. But then... Biff saw a jogger running along the sidewalk right on the edge of Central Park. The, the jogger was cruising along. He was looking good, and he was moving at a great pace. Meanwhile, Biff is kind of leaning out the car window with that bullhorn, looking himself a little bit roundish. Biff watches the guy running for a moment, and then he brings the bullhorn up to his lips, and he just speaks in a matter-of-fact voice. You're going to die anyway. <laughs> like, I mean, I just broke out laughing the, the first time I heard that. But, but we know that some people trust in wealth to make their life whole or to make their life complete. And, and it's not just the people who already have wealth who trust in it. You know that the poor can trust in wealth just as much. The only difference is that the wealth-trusting rich are afraid of losing what they have, but the wealth-trusting poor are desperate because they're afraid they'll never get what they want. But both trust in it because wealth promises them a life of power or a life of comfort, a life of security or a life of ease. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Elsewhere in Scripture, we can see that wealth is a good thing. It is one blessing that the Lord can give. We, we could even say that the Lord loves to give wealth to His people, though He doesn't always give it in the same way or how we want. I, I'm, I'm saying be done with those ideas of the health and wealth gospel. That is not how life works. But we also know that God knows what we need in this life. And He promises to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. But trusting in wealth is something very different. Trusting in wealth is not good. And against that hope in wealth, the psalmist sings like Biff. You're going to die anyway. And then what? And then what? The absurdity of living for wealth is revealed by death. Because wealth always fails. And when it fails, its failure undoes everything. And so if we would be wise, 
We must understand that wealth means nothing in death. No matter how much you have, it cannot stop death. And after death, there is yet more to understand. This is the second main part of the psalm. We must understand that after death comes a divergence. That's what we see in verses 13 and 15, really in the heart of it. There are two separate paths with two radically different ends. The first is the path of those whose hope has left them forever. But the second, the second is the path of those whose hope cannot fail. Look at the first path, though. Even though people approve of their boast, even though people may like the posts of the rich kids of Instagram, I don't know if you've seen that before, but it's the, the young people around the world, the children of the Russian oligarchs who are displaying their wealth and, and getting lots of likes. Even though people approve of their boasts, even so, verses 13 and 14 show us why it's foolish to put confidence in wealth in this life. Because after this life, they are helplessly guided, sent to a place they do not want to go. Here that place is called Sheol. Sometimes in the Bible that name simply refers to the grave, but here it is more than that. It's something else. To be in Sheol is contrasted here in the passage with being received by God. So Sheol then is the place where God is not. It's the place of rejection from His presence. And so here Sheol speaks of a place of pain. Like in the last line of verse 14, Sheol is a place of consuming. A place of no shelter. Contrast that in your mind with the comfortable life of those who in this life had trusted in wealth and you can see this, this dark but just reversal of fortune. Whereas in life, they looked to wealth for comfort and security. In verse 14, the only shepherd they have in death is death itself. It says, death shall be their shepherd. But look at the other path. Verse 14 points toward another reversal of fortunes. For the faithful people, for the upright, there will come a day when, though they were oppressed and taken advantage of in this life, there will be a dawn when the upright rule. Now the upright here is not talking about perfect people. Those don't exist. But it speaks rather of those who have not trusted in wealth, but trusted in the Lord Himself. The upright are those who have embraced Him. Embrace His covenant from their hearts. And while this new dawn of morning could refer to either a reversal that happens in this life, or it could refer to the resurrection morning promised by the prophets, the point is not, set, uh, it's not to set a certain time of a reversal of fortunes, but rather to establish the certainty of the event itself. It's the promise that there will come a day when the Lord sets right what is wrong and He clearly distinguishes between those who trust in Him and those 
who trust in empty things. But the real hope that takes away that, the fear from the psalmist, the reason why he can say, why should I fear? The hope is seen in full in verse 15. The psalmist knows that he does not have enough money to ransom his life, but he has a God who is willing to pay the price to be with him. Indeed, where death is the shepherd of the faithless, God presents himself as the shepherd of those who trust in him. Even death itself cannot separate the psalmist from his master who loves him. And so while he lives, fear is driven away when he remembers that God will ransom him. And more than that, God will receive him personally. Face to face. He says, He will receive me. How can you and I live with no fear like Him? How can we have such confidence that God will ransom and receive us? This is a vital question because. If you're like me, when you look over the course of your life, you can see how often you have trusted in something else other than God to make your life whole and complete. Maybe for you it was wealth. Or maybe for you it is wealth. And you believe it's lying the promises of security and comfort and control and pleasure. Or, or maybe you have put your health in your your hope in something else like health or fitness. Or maybe it's your reputation at work or the approval of other people. Or maybe you have put your hope in being a religious person, a person who is very good at being very good. But what, help, what happens when that hope fails? When the wealth is gone, when the reputation is tainted, when the career or the body decays, what happens when you discover that you're not very good at being very good? We can put our hope in a lot of different things, but if we see clearly, if you see clearly today, once again, how all of those other things mean nothing in death, then where is there hope for people like us, people who have failed what hope do we have that God will receive us if, if we really have nothing to offer to Him? The hope that we have is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because before this psalm is ever true of us, it was true of Jesus. Because Jesus is that perfectly upright one who came to his own people and was mistreated by them, shamefully treated and oppressed by them. And yet even then, Jesus was the one living in perfect confidence that God would rescue him from death. God would ransom him from the grave and receive him once again with all the glory that Jesus had before the world was created. And even knowing all of this, even so, Jesus is the one who himself suffered death in order to be the price that God paid 
to ransom his people for himself. As Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's in the gospel that we see the hope that God gives to rich and poor alike. As you and I put our hope not in wealth, but in God. As we turn away from our hope in these empty things and we set our confidence in Christ alone, then the promise of life beyond death is yours. The promise of God receiving you face to face after you have left this mortal body the promise is yours and the promise is greater still because God promises that yet in your flesh you will see him face to face because he is the one who will make all things new your absence from the body is a temporary thing because there will be a day when the, all of the dead are raised up to eternal life, some to eternal death, but for God's people in Christ, raised to eternal life and given new, glorified, forever bodies that are like our Lord's body. That's why we can live and we can die with understanding. We can live and die with hope. Because even when death comes for us, in Christ we can face it without fear. Remembering that God our Father promises to receive us. And so we can say that if we have Christ, though we lack all the wealth of the world, if we have Christ, it's more than enough. We can, like Moses long ago, uh, forego all the wealth of Egypt because we think knowing Christ is better. But what does it look like to live like this today? What does it look like to live and even to die in that kind of hope? In verses 16 and, and following in the psalm, we, we can see how hope in God produces a life without fear. Wisdom speaks, be not afraid when a man becomes rich. It's encouraging us to live today, not measuring today by what we see, not on what we see our bosses driving, not by what we see on Instagram, not by any of these outward things. Because if we look at the world with understanding, we don't have to be agitated anymore by life's inequalities. As one writer says, death is the great leveler. And in contrast to their earthly experience, there is no light for those who trust in wealth beyond the grave. In death, that distinction between the haves and the have-nots is taken away, and all that is left is the distinction between those who are forsaken to death and those who are blessed indeed because they are ransomed and received by God. To live this way with this kind of hope means that we're able to hear Jesus when He speaks, when He says that our life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We, we can hear him when he speaks, that, uh, like we heard earlier in the service, that our real life is hidden with God in Christ, and it is secure, and it's not going anywhere. 
And so this frees us from living, grasping lives. Envious of those who have lots today, but nothing after death. The gospel, the gospel frees us to live generous lives with each other, sharing what we have uh, with each other and anyone in need, because God has been so generous to us in Christ. It also means that you have something to say to people. To people who may lack this wisdom, this understanding. You have something to say to the people that God has put in your life. Maybe your aging parents wring their hands with worry over money. Maybe your children are afraid of they're missing out because they don't have the same things that their friends at school have. You, knowing this, having this understanding, you can invite them into the freedom and the hope of Christ. Christ who says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or, or what can a person give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You can say to people that it is possible to live without fear. You can remind them that wealth is not the measure of God's favor. You can say to them that we have a better hope. A hope that, unlike wealth, cannot and will not fail. Our hope is in Christ, who has passed through death to pay our ransom. Our hope is in Christ, who promises that He is coming soon. And whether we go to Him in death or He comes to us, His promise is that He will receive us, that He will receive you who hope in Him. And we will see Him face to face forever. People of God, may that hope in Him take away your fear today. And as you are freed from all fears, may you live in a way that displays the goodness, even the generosity of our God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this wisdom. It's the wisdom that comes from above. It's the wisdom that is revealed in the person of Jesus. Father, it's true that not many of us here, like the Corinthian church, not many of us here are, are rich uh, not many of us are born of noble birth. And yet, God, you yourself have chosen us to be yours. And Father, it is by your grace that you have paid the ransom for our souls. It is by your grace that you promise to receive us. And so, Father, we lift up to you empty hands. And we say that it is better that we take up our cross and follow Jesus for though we may follow him into death for a time, we know that because he has been raised, we too will be raised to new, eternal life with you forever. And so, Father, help us to live and to die wisely with understanding. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.